Tradition four. I'll go to the long form. We'll have some fun with this one for sure. With respect to its own affairs, each AA group should be responsible to no other authority than its own conscience. But when its plans concern the welfare of neighboring groups also, those groups ought to be consulted. And no group, regional committee, or individual should ever take any action that might greatly affect AA as a whole without conferring with the trustees of the General Service Board. On such issues, our common welfare is paramount. The short form is each group should be autonomous, except the matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. One might notice uh, in regular day-to-day AA, you can't hear someone talk about Tradition 4 without hearing about being autonomous. So I hope that you realized it is not in the long form. That word is not in the long form. That doesn't mean it's not saying the same thing, but this focus on uh, autonomous. So on page 146 of the 12 and 12, it starts out by saying autonomy is a $10 word. But in relation to us, it means very simple that every AA group can manage its affairs exactly as it pleases, except when an AA, when AA as a whole is, in threat, is threatened. Comes now the same question raised in tradition one, isn't such liberty foolishly dangerous? So a couple of things um, I do want to say that no page numbers in the uh, Traditions Illustrated pamphlet. But if you do read it, that section on Tradition 4, you will see that we talk about customs versus other things, local customs. If you have an AA Comes of Age, page 103 is where the section on Tradition 4 starts. And there's some great lines in here. Um, If you go over to page 106, it talks about where Rule 62 comes from. Don't take yourself too seriously. If you go to page 105 to the second paragraph, um, it says healthy trial and error always have their day and place in AA. Of course, any dissident group is urged, though never commanded, not to make any other affiliation. But the name Alcoholics Anonymous, it says at the bottom, must be reserved for us only. And then it goes on to one of my favorite lines. We have two authorities which are far more effective. One is benign, the other malign. There is God, our Father, who simply says, I am waiting for you to do my will. The other authority is named John Barleycorn, and he says, you had better do God's will or I will kill you. And sometimes he does. So in in relation to the long form, where are the troubles that we see regarding this tradition? I hope I can explain it in a, a, a practical way. Starting with the first sentence of the long form with respect to its own affairs, its own affairs. So let's give an example or a couple of what are a group's, what aren't a group's affairs? Okay. The big book is not the affair of a group. The group does not decide what new stories go in, does not decide what pages to take out, and does not decide what words to change. That belongs to the conference. That belongs to the General Service Conference, who speaks for AA as a whole for the United States and Canada. A group does not get to print 
a new Traditions Illustrated making some changes that they feel are there. That group conscience belongs to the conference. A group might be listed in a local meeting directory. The group doesn't get to change the meeting directory without asking the local intergroup or central office. Its own affairs. What are a group's own affairs? Well, I can start by where you choose to have your meeting. That's your business. No one else's. I can start by the time of your meeting. And the day that you meet or days, you might meet multiple days. That's your group's own affairs. The type of meeting that you have, whether it's open or closed, that's up to your group. How your meeting format is, is it a big book study? Is it a speaker meeting? Is it a topic discussion meeting? Those are all decisions that belong to your group. How does your group celebrate anniversaries? Once a month with a special meeting? Does it do it on the day closest to the person's anniversary? Does your group let people speak for their anniversary? Some groups, the person with the longest or shortest sobriety gets to pick a speaker. Does your group have a cake with candles and cupcakes? Does your group tell people or group members to support the birthday plan where you send a dollar or whatever amount for every year of sobriety into the general service board? Those are all group decisions. That's where, that's where Tradition 4 comes into play. Unfortunately, most times, I always joke around, once you hear somebody throw out Tradition 4 or autonomy in a business meeting, get ready for three or four other traditions to be ran over with a truck. Um, and so I want to stress this, that the 12 traditions... This tradition is not veto power over one of the 11. It is, it is here for local customs. And so when groups change things like the blue cards, or they change things like uh, adding things to scripts about outside affiliations, or dealing with more than one problem, this is not a tradition for issue. And, and, and let me talk about a couple of things that we're seeing, obviously, during the pandemic and this onslaught of um, online meetings. By any 12-step fellowships traditions, there is no such thing as an AA combination slash hyphen some other 12-step fellowship meeting. So there is no such thing as an AA and an Al-Anon meeting. Al-Anon doesn't recognize that. AA doesn't recognize that. That sounds like a recovery group of members of AA and Al-Anon, but definitely not an Al-Anon meeting and definitely not an AA meeting. There's no such thing. We hear the term in AA sometimes double winners, and I hear people say that that's autonomy. It's not. 
In fact, if you talk to some good Al-Anon members, they'll tell you that the term double winners is kind of insulting. That they don't ever want to be put together with AA. And you know, something else that a a great Al-Anon member told me, which I guess because I don't go to Al-Anon, I never thought about, but she told me something and it, it, it is, whenever I think about it, it has even a greater effect on me. And she said, as an AA member, the greatest compliment she can get from an Al-Anon member who's known her many years is when they're surprised to learn she's in AA. That then she knows the people in both her groups are respecting her, are respecting her anonymity. And that she's not saying things in either group that would lead people to believe that she's a member of the other fellowship. What a great statement by a just great regular member of Al-Anon that the greatest compliment for her after being in Al-Anon many years is when someone in Al-Anon is surprised to learn she's in AA or someone in AA is surprised to learn she's in Al-Anon. Um, but this pandemic has created lots of creative uses of the word autonomy and autonomous. And I guess it's a good place for me to say this too, that, you know, much like I said that um, there's no such thing as an online group or an online meeting. It is a meeting or a group and its location is online. You know, um, there's not a separate set of traditions for digital or online meetings. They have the same 12 traditions. Um, and, and where do we see, practically speaking, this um, tradition when people want to override another tradition? Well, we see it with three and five all the time. We see it with three and five all the time. But we're even starting to see it um, with other traditions. Money. We see people saying, well, that tradition doesn't apply to us, six or seven. But it does. A group is bound, suggested by the principles in tradition six and tradition seven. The other thing which I, you know, I have to comment on, I heard some talk about before, is there's lots of things in AA that are not AA. They were made up by AA members, and that's nice. It doesn't make it AA. The steps were written separate than the traditions. The traditions were written separate than the steps. The concepts were written separate from the traditions and the steps. So while some people are creatively weaving a story between step one, tradition one, and concept one, they have a right to weave their own personal story. But they weren't written that way. They were not written to interact with each other. They were written to be horizontal, not vertical. They do not go across. They go up and down. Um, And there was another point I wanted to make there. Oh, yeah. Um, The principles. That's another thing that just drives me crazy. You know, we have have meetings that are so-called based on principles, especially online. Um, You know, the principles one word 
principles. There is no place in our AA literature where you can find these principles attached to a step or a tradition or a concept. They were created by individual members, which again, I respect their right to create them. But just because 12 principles sold well on a calendar in 1992 doesn't make them AA. It just means they were on a calendar. And and I struggle with some of them to begin with, like justice for nine. I mean, if we were to really get justice for the way we behaved and acted, is that really what we want? Do we really want justice? Uh, most of us have gotten grace and mercy. But again, this is where tradition four, you know, once you get a little room with it, people start taking more room. Um, same thing with how people identify in meetings. And here's another way I know I have like four minutes. Uh, another way, and it's kind of, again, weaving it in with recovery in the big book and believing in recovery in the big book. Inadvertently, here's another way that people use autonomy. And it's, it's just not okay. And I'll give you an example. A new person shows up at the group. The new person goes out to fellowship with the group after. While the new person is talking to someone, the new person lets loose that besides alcoholism, they have an eating disorder. How many times have I heard somebody say, oh, I'll find you someone in AA who has an eating disorder also. That's just not right. That's taking autonomy way too far. Any alcoholic should be able to help that person. Any other problem they have, they should have to go to another fellowship. Um, the other thing about autonomy, I just want to go to one more page. I'll give you the reference. On Rule 62 which first appears um, in AA Comes of Age on the page I already quoted. Um, but I also want to talk about Rule 63. You know why? Because it's not in the literature. So I hear people talk about that too. There's no Rule 63 in the literature, no Rule 64 in the literature, just simply Rule 62. Now, it's nice that that person has applied a Rule 60-something to their own life. But it's not okay for all of AA. And I really hope that instead of people looking at AA's traditions as being so restrictive, they would look at them as being like the perfectly woven guidelines to keep AA intact without overstepping and without being too controlling. This autonomy issue is, is saying we give you lots of freedom. We give groups lots of freedom. We give members lots of freedom. But the other thing I want to, you know, say is that in the, and I know that this is controversial, so I'll just get that out of the way. The long form of tradition four says, with respect to its own affairs, each AA group should be responsible to no authority. I want to tell you what it does not say there. 
it does not say anything about autonomy or being autonomous for an AA member. Okay. It is talking about group autonomy. It is talking about a group having local customs. I don't get to go to a podium and say things like, I I know this is AA, but I'm going to be autonomous and I'm going to talk about this as well. There's no such thing as AA group, as AA member autonomy. Uh, But we have lots of people who are doing things like that. Same with last names. We have people who are saying, well, you know, I give my last name. Well, you don't have autonomy. The group, the spiritual entity has autonomy, not you as an individual AA member. That's actually kind of just rebellious, not autonomy. That's rebellion. Um, And I think sometimes we confuse rebellion with autonomy. Um, But there's a way to solve that. If you're a trusted servant here, I just want to remind you. If you're responsible for picking the speakers, pick speakers that respect the traditions. Pick speakers that don't weave their own autonomy story into speaking at an AA meeting. Um, because you can't blame a bad speaker for being a bad speaker. Because even if the Friday night speaker at the last convention you went to was the worst speaker you ever held, heard, one of the things I can guarantee is they didn't mail themselves a letter or an email inviting themselves to speak. Someone else invited them to speak. And it's, it, there's really nothing wrong with applying these traditions if you're carrying out the duties of a trusted servant in Alcoholics Anonymous at any level. And, and, you know, people say, how do you practically put these into effect? Well, for me, if the first word or two out of a person's mouth is autonomy, that's a pretty good sign that they're a rebel. That's a pretty good sign that maybe they can do that in their own time. But when it comes to the group and serving AA, I have to do what's best for AA. So that's it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Billy. And now for the fourth step. That's right. It's inventory time. Chris, the floor is yours for the next 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Just a real quick one. I just, any of you guys that have ever heard me talk out there for the, for the gazillions of times that I've used my last name, it was never done out of, uh, you know, I'm going to do it my way. It was just um, as I did. So I apologize. I'll try to be a little more careful with that. I still think at a group level, it's okay to let people know who you are. I'm just, I'm just going to say that. But anyway, bless you. Always learn something. I, uh, one of my favorite things to do is this four step stuff. Um, it, cause it's one of the things that finally set me free. I, I spent all those years in Alcoholics Anonymous and you'd be sitting in a meeting and some little guy in a, in a, you know, in a halfway house over there, he'd say, you know, well, I'm working on my four step and, and the, the whole room would groan at that time. Y'all, you know, just, oh man, you know, this is like early eighties and early, uh, late eighties, early nineties. And, and it was just like, oh, this is so tough. And, and I, I gotta tell you. Years later, I was again because I'm a, a little history buff and and I like to, you know, I study a lot of this stuff and I, you know, the websites that I go to around the history, you know, 
it, it, the fourth step was never intended to be this complicated thing that it became. Um, I don't know if any of y'all remember, I'm watching the time there. Uh, the, uh, what was the show? Clean and Sober. I remember back in the day with Michael Keaton. I don't remember what year it was out. It was early 90s, I think. But, uh, you know, he's an alcoholic, a little dope fiend, whatever. And he's at, at the table with his sponsor at a diner and they're doing a, fourth, a fifth step. And he's got three, two or three little pieces of paper there, you know. And I remember every, the next day in the AA meeting, everybody's making fun of that. Oh, did you see that? Two or three papers. You know, he wasn't doing it right. I said, the truth of the matter was, he was doing it exactly the way the old timers did. Somebody sent me a... Um, I looked for it. I just moved offices not long ago and I, I can't find it. I've got an 84 page fourth step guide somewhere. Somebody gave it to me. Come on, guys, think about this. 84 pages. You got this little newcomer coming in. He's shaking. He's detoxing still. He's a nervous wreck. And you drop this on his table. Here you go. Get started. And it's like, no, come on. It's not supposed to be that complicated. It's just, it's a fact finding mission. It's an inventory. I, it's pretty simple. And uh, if you do it the way the big book outlines, oh, man, guys, it's just not that complicated. Um, Bill Wilson gets uh, gets pretty clear about it. I was talking to it earlier. This is a place we usually get bogged down because everybody wants. And it is, I got to say this, a sponsor. Uh, this is the place that's the most labor intensive when I'm sponsoring somebody is trying to show them what this is about and being close if they've got any questions. But, um, you know, we're going to do this really fast. So, you know, little guys get up and then we do a little third step prayer. And I'm going to get up, hug his little neck. And thank you for doing that. And, and we're going to be golden. And then I'm going to give him the instructions for four step right then. And I'm going to tell you guys, I do it this way. And there's nothing etched in stone. I'm not forcing them. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm going to give them uh, a few days to do it. I got my little paper date planner out because I'm old school and I'll open it up and I'll say, okay, well, this is Saturday. And so next Saturday, we'll do your fifth step. One week, guys, if you give them six months, five months and 28 days, they're going to be at home writing like a sunbutt, you know, just bang, just get to get this thing out. They haven't touched it in all this time. But in the meantime, what happens, folks, is this. We, we stop drinking. And we're starting to do some of this work. We're getting connected to our home group and our lives start to change. Well, the stuff that we used to hold down with all of our drinking, you know, my guilt and my shame and all this crazy stuff starts to burgle up. I can always go get a drink and drop it back down again. I don't have that anymore. Uh, guilt's a bear. You know, it's uh, that old expression, you know, God may forgive your sins, but your conscience won't. You know, and it starts all perfect. That's why I'm saying this this idea that we were supposed to let these people have all this time to do this work. I it, it, no doubt probably came from treatment centers in, in the uh, uh, in the early 80s when they started coming out, giving them something to do. Well, you've got 30 days, start working on your four step. And it's like, okay, but you know, the time that we're spending on that, and I know some of y'all are grinding your teeth because you did it that way. And you know, I had a guy, I was talking in a, in a big city one time doing a workshop. Uh, do a little church in a, a talking in, in a big old church and and coming up afterwards and there was a whole bunch of people coming up to thank me and this guy comes up and he's got three of those big wire not notebooks and he's got a big book on top and he's holding it all like this and he said Chris I just need to show you my fourth step and he says if you do the fourth step like I've done here I've got fifteen hundred names on my inventory and he says if you do it like this selfishness will disappear completely from your life. And I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, there's 200 people waiting to say thank you so they can go smoke. 
and you're up here wanting to lecture me on four step. Why don't you, you know, bite me? Go away. You know, as if, this is ridiculous. Fifteen hundred. Who are you? You hate everybody you came in contact with. What, what? Who are you, Damien? <laughs> Satan's son? I don't understand any of that. This is it's not supposed to be that complicated. Get the big stuff out, folks. That's that's it. And uh, first thing I do is I just have them exactly what the book big book says. We're going to make a list of people, institutions, and principles that that we're we're resentful at, that we're angry at. Y'all know people, ex-wives, employer, blah blah, coworker, institutions or groups of people. Are you mad at the police? Or are you mad at a cop? It's a different. Are you mad at the banker that wouldn't lend you the money? Or are you mad at the whole institution? It's like it's a place to put that principles, belief systems that you hold near and dear. Some of you guys right now, I got to tell you, I've got friends in the program right now that nobody wants to be around because they're so vocal about all of their political views. You can't say anything without them taking a shot at somebody. And it's like, guys, I I don't want to be that person. Life is too dead gum short. I'm going to hold I'm I stand for some things, guys. I got that. But this nonsense for me to be that resentful about everything under the sun. Just because somebody doesn't do it the way you want it done, you're mad at them? Okay. These are some principles that you need to look at. Put them on the list. I got a, I got a, uh, one day, you think after all the thousands of Zooms I've done, I've learned how to share a screen. Well, I'm sharing it right now. Okay. Look here. Here it is. Here's my shared screen. Y'all see, I got a little notebook like this. Y'all see? Four columns, what the big book said. Oh, look at that. I think, what would we have done without these technical guys? I mean, really, three years ago, we'd have died. It, it's, bless you. I got all little four columns on there. The first column, I'm going to put the person up or the institution or principal that I'm mad at. And um, and then I'm going to look at the second column, and I'm going to give you my best shot with, with uh, what I'm uh, angry at them about. What's the cause? And it's bullet points, guys. I'm not interested in this big old long drawn out story. Bullet points. Third column. How did it affect? Did this hurt, threaten, or interfere with my what? Self-esteem. My pride. Y'all know self-esteem, how I feel about myself. Yeah. My pride, how I think others see me. I'm more concerned about that than anything. Y'all follow? Last thing I want to do is look stupid. My ambitions, what I what I what I want to be okay, my security, what I need to be okay, my personal relations, my pocketbook. Golly, guys, money, money is huge. I mean, my poor little life, I'm I'm chock full with it. I put these things down and I'm working in columns, guys. So if I'm gonna put a first name and then I'm gonna put all the, the list of things, one, two, three, four, I may have four resentments against this person. And then third column, I'm going to go in there and it says, how did this resentment right here affect me in those seven areas? I got a little guide like this right straight out of the book I can send you, but that's, that's, and then I look at stop. The book says we stop and we're going to look at this like in a completely different uh, angle. And uh, that's where the little sick man prayer is. And we're going to start looking at my mistakes. Now, listen, I can't tell you because how many times I start talking about this. I have, Done it in the past. I've said my part. I hear a lot of people do it. I've seen it on the internet. I've seen it on guides. What's your part? Okay. 
I was in uh, Seattle doing a workshop one time, and this this nice old guy came up and uh, explained to me one, thank you very much. That uh, that's not what the big book says. The big book is not asking me to, sh- to put my part in there. It's looking at my mistakes. You come up with somebody that's resentful at somebody that hurt them as a child. I can assure you that little knucklehead played no part in that. But he's made some mistakes in that. Perhaps allowing this to go on as long as it did, the, the not talking to people about it, you know, carrying all that burden on their shoulder. It, we all make mistakes. And when you can look at that like that, then we can start getting free. I'm going to give you an analogy. If, if I got, if this person harmed me and it's just this big old black spot in my life and I can get over to this fourth column and I can see that I made one little mistake in there. Again, I'm looking at areas like where was I selfish? Where was I being judgmental? Where was I being self-seeking, dishonest? Oh, dishonesty. I'm chock full with it. Y'all follow? And afraid, fear. A lot of times, guys, I was mad at people who never told them I was mad. That's dishonest. I never tried to clean it up. A lot of times, I just, if I can see that I played, had one little mistake in there, I can get free of the resentment. Guys, if y'all don't hear this, some old guy told me this a billion years ago. And if you don't hear anything else I say in the next, all this next time we've got left with each other, please hear this. Victimized people get sober every day. Victims don't. You got it? Man, I got to tell you guys, in my position of doing fist steps and listening to so many people out there and, and, and just how did we survive the stuff that we've been through? I heard some people say, you know, over the years, heard people go, oh, you alcoholics are just weak. But there ain't nothing weak about nobody in this room. We're the strongest people we know. We, we went to work and raised families and went to school. We did it all, and we did it all impaired. Take that. I don't want to walk around and continue to carry things in my life that I don't need to be carrying. And sometimes the negative experience that we're, we're carrying does more damage than the initial item that happened. It just... I remember spending some time with my dad. I didn't know that he had two weeks before he had a stroke and died. He, he, they were putting a pacemaker into him in a heart and he, he passed away, but he was, he'd had a stroke, but he was sitting on the front row of this, uh, this little nursing home close to work. And he was sitting there and he was complaining about a man that said he owed him some money and it ruined his credit. Now, the man's been dead for 30 years. Y'all follow? The business was gone forever. And, but my dad spent the last part of his life grinding his teeth about something like that. I don't want to do that. I want to look at this stuff and get past it. And thank God I had somebody in my life that was able to help uh, help me see what this was about, kind of show me how to put this put this on paper so I could get free of this. When you see the mistakes you've made, folks, you can get free of that resentment. I'm I'm as flawed as the next person. Just like Billy said, thank God this is not about justice. This is about mercy. I could talk for an hour about that. I'm not going to. I just, y'all stay in touch. We can visit. One of the things that I want to mention before I move on, there's three parts to this inventory. We just talked about the resentment inventory. And uh, 
the one of the biggest challenges real quick for most folks is the is they're always told want you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Okay. We want you to put down everybody. Okay. And that's why they allow you to take so long. And that's why you hear people in AA all the time. I'm working on my four step. I'm working on my four step. Guys, I'm going to tell you, I would rather, I would rather watch um, anybody in there. Do an inventory and give me the top 15 resentments you got. Current stuff. And let's deal with that. Then to sit there and watch you try to come up with 45 resentments and you can't think of anything. Y'all understand? Stop comparing yourself with the, with the evil little knucklehead sitting next to you that may have a thousand resentments. I don't know, folks. We, a lot of us just weren't raised that way. I'm just saying it's, this is not a numbers game. I want, you've got enough current. When you lay down at night, what are you grinding your teeth over? Because if you're sitting there trying to think of somebody to put on that list, don't. I've done fist steps with guys and they're sitting there coming. Well, you know, this was this kid in kindergarten. And I don't remember his name, but he stole my milk. Really? No. Really? No. Next. Go on. Get on down there. You're, that's just, you're just being stupid. You got the, you got enough current stuff out there, big stuff to deal with without that. I'm just saying thorough like that. One of the things real quick, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, a lot of times when I'm out there doing these uh, works, I get to go to, go to uh, 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 a face-to-face workshop. We're going to do a little step stuff over in Florida next weekend, and I'm going to talk about this, same stuff, some of this stuff, and I'm going to mention this, what I'm going to mention now. Every time I do, we take a break afterwards, and I got a line of people coming up. It, it would be, I don't care if I'm in Europe. I don't care if I'm new. I don't care where I'm at. If I start talking about what I'm fixing to tell you here right now, everybody got their hair catches on fire and the old sponsors want to come up. And I'm just saying, my book says, put your name on the list. Top of page 66. To conclude that others were wrong was far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. Who do we put on this inventory? People we're sore at. Guys, I'm going to tell you, your own worst enemy is you. And at a certain point, you got to start letting, you got to take your own foot off your own neck. There needs to be a little forgiveness downstream for the, some of the crazy stuff you've done. Put your name on this list. I'm scanning over the screens, guys. I'm looking. Is that happy you were doing this? I, okay, because your sponsor told you not to do that. My book told me to do that. I'm just saying, you, there's, it's pretty freeing when you do it. If you look on the bottom on page 67, notice the word fear is bracketed along the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. Uh, this, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. God, it set in motion trains and circumstances we thought we didn't deserve, but didn't ourselves, we, didn't, we saw, set the ball rolling. I used to read that and I used to think, God, Bill Wilson's prose, you know, it was an evil and corroding thread. And then I started doing a fear inventory and realized <laughs> it was an evil and corroding thread. Our lives were shot through with it. I sat down with my first sponsor. And he, 
He said, I said, put the stuff down you're afraid of. I said, I'm not really afraid of anything. I was thinking about, I'm not really afraid of anything. He said, Chris, Chris are you afraid of getting sick? This is back in the 80s, guys. AIDS was out there rampant. Everybody was nervous. I said, are you afraid of? I said, well, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid of getting sick. Well, you afraid of not having any money? Well, yeah, a little bit. Well, are you afraid of dying? Well, of course, everybody's afraid. Well, are you afraid of women? That's a cheap damn shot. Well, maybe. Why don't you just make a list of things you're not afraid of? You could put little bunny rabbits on there and that would be it. You know, it's like you're afraid of everything. The truth is when we start looking down, it is. I wake up in the morning and the first thing my head goes to is the stuff I don't want to do during the day. Even to this day, when I sit down and do another inventory, I'm looking at the stuff. Guys, I think I got a lot of faith. The truth is, Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I, yeah. This getting old stuff, I just need to tell you folks, for any of you, some of you little young knuckleheads that are coming up, yeah, this this ain't for kids. Just saying. These are not your golden years that I'm in now. These suck. Okay, I'm just saying. Enjoy it now while you got them. <laughs> but you wake up and you're worried about, yeah, put it on paper so you don't have to carry this stuff around. It, it, it makes all the difference in the world, folks. I got to tell you. I look at um, I look at the uh, sex inventory. This fear inventory, I've seen expanded fear inventories where there were multiple columns. My book says, what's the fear and why you think you have it? And the book says real clear, was it because self-reliance failed us? Yeah, we're here in the world to play the world. God assigns not what we're, yeah. It's it's real simple. It's two pages, really good two pages, folks, that he's talking about, specific instructions. Sex inventory, folks, is real simple. And for a long time, um, you'll know how this fifth step is going to go is when I sit down with a guy that says, okay, let's do your sex inventory. And they go, oh, goody, now we get to talk about the girls. And it's like, no, nah, time out. You know, let's go look at it because something's something's wrong. Yeah. I'm not looking for all the sordid details. My big book asked me to look at, at uh, nine areas from 68 to 70, two pages. Book is talking specifically about, about uh, my uh, behavior towards the opposite sex. And I'm going to tell you, folks, I made a list of all the relationships I was in. And whether it was consummated with sex or not, there were a lot of relationships I had that were quite flirtatious. And I might have been joking. They weren't. So I have to look and see how I'm actually treating uh, my significant other. That's because um, it sure it sure popped up a lot of stuff when I started putting this stuff on paper. I combined one night stands because uh, it was the same person, different name. I just like. But it's a numbers game if you start looking at it. But I'm not looking for a novel. The book is asking me nine questions around each relationship. What actions of mine were selfish? I'm only thinking about myself. Pretty self-explanatory. What actions of mine were dishonest? Hey, baby, I love you when I don't. What actions of mine were inconsiderate? Not even going to go there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. What actions? I say, who was hurt by my actions in this relationship? 
Now, this is a really good one, folks, because a lot of this is going to show up when I do my fifth step. This is an area that I'm going to get my eight step list. A lot of times, let's say this girl was hurt because we broke up and it was a nasty relationship. Y'all follow? Okay. But we dated for six months and there was some, there was some kids involved, not mine, but they were hers, but I got attached to those kids. And I need to tell you, if you want the kids to get attached to you, put a black eye patch on. After the initial, is there blood behind that? Questions get over with. They just think you're a little pirate in their living room and they love you. Okay. And I walked away from this relationship and never gave those little kids a second thought. Never gave the, the mom and pop that loved me to death a second thought. I just walked away. Selfish to the core. Who was hurt by my actions in this relationship? What actions of mine aroused jealousy, suspicion? What actions of mine aroused bitterness? Y'all follow? Sometimes I'll be on a Zoom and one of you guys will be loving on a dog. Patty and I can't have a dog because we both travel so much. And y'all will be loving on that dog. Y'all follow? They'll be licking your face. And I'll send you a little chat, a little message in chat. You are unjustifiably arousing jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. <laughs> like, damn. Uh, yeah, one of these days I'm going to get a dog. I'm just saying. It ain't going to happen now, but where was I at fault? What should I have done instead? Don't be sanctimonious about it. I should never have been in a relationship till I married the woman. That's, come on, guys. We live in, two, yeah, stop. Ain't nothing wrong with dating, folks. But we all have things that we could do. And if you'll do the writing around it now, you'll start shaping a sane, sound sex ideal, and you'll stop getting back in the same damn relationship over and over and over again. You'll stop making the same stupid mistakes. Do this inventory, and you'll start seeing it. Guys, and I'm just as capable of doing this today. I mean, sometimes I do stuff that's just unacceptable. I'll pop off and say something to somebody in my AA group. I think it's funny. And it turns out it was it was not. It was It was creepy. I got to look at that. So I stopped doing it. Just It's just that real simple. I get this down on paper. If I'm, if I'm doing a four-step the way I'm supposed to be doing a four-step, I could sit down with any one of y'all and do a fifth-step. Any of you ladies in here, I could do my sex inventory with you. There's nowhere in here that it say anything about talking about sex. We're not doing any of that. I'm talking about my behavior. And that's why it drives me crazy when I sit down and do a fifth step with somebody and they want to start giving me this long list of all this romantic. And then we went and we, and all the, I don't want to hear about, no, I don't want to hear about any of that. I want you to answer these questions so that we can get some clarity around what's going on. Make sense? Big book makes a really clear point in that, uh, in those pages, folks. If my behavior towards the opposite sex continues to harm others, I will surely drink again. Y'all follow? I just got to say, it's it's it just it's in the same com- conversation we're having here. One of my big pet peeves is when we go to Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, we start talking about it, and then somebody's always going to get in there. Well, my sponsor doesn't want me to date for the first year. Guys, there's nowhere in the book does it say that. My sponsor asked me to do a four-step so I could start paying attention to what the heck I'm doing with the opposite sex, so I could stop being a, a little, little nutcase and, and start treating people with respect. And if the relationship works out, great, great. If it doesn't, I can be very kind and go my go our separate ways. I don't have to go in there and make a bunch of amends because I did something stupid. 
Does that make sense, guys? It drives me crazy when people come back into the rooms and, well, you know, we got in a relationship. Let me be the first to tell you guys real quick. I got one minute with you. If if I'm sponsoring a guy and he's six months sober and he's dating and he relapses, because I hear it all the time out there, well, he got in a relationship with this girl. That's not why he relapsed. Come on, guys. He relapsed because he stopped doing the work. It was a first step problem. He didn't think he was one, really one of us, so he crapped out on the steps, and he didn't do the things we followed. In other words, service work, the home group member, like that. Oh, that's why he got loaded. No person can get me drunk, folks. There's nothing out there that can get me drunk. What kind of a crappy program would we have if it only worked when things are going perfect? Oh, but I remember that line in Fred the Businessman story. Y'all remember over there in, in uh, More About Alcoholism where it talks about Fred the Businessman? It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. <laughs> and he goes and gets drunk. Yeah. Guys, I don't need a reason to drink. If I'm not doing the work, the obsession's going to come back. Stop blaming the girl or the guy. It's priority. I'm going to tell you this. I was married one time to somebody that was not in the program, and I did the ultimate mistake by not including her in the fellowship, not allowing her to come to meetings occasionally with me, speaker meetings. It was always my program. Y'all follow? And eventually she got jealous of the program. My fault. But my sane, sound sex ideal that I came up with when I did this inventory, when I sat down with my sponsor, we did a little exercise uh, I do a little separate exercise. I can send it to you if you're ever interested. But it was, I, I developed the same sound sex idea. What I came up with was that I wanted uh, my next wife, if I ever got married again, to be in the program. I so desperately love Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not even funny. And I would love to share that with somebody else who loves it as much as I do. And I don't care who it is. If they're not in the program, I, didn't, I, I wasn't going to entertain the idea of being in a relationship with them. That was just me. But I got that from my inventory. Unless Pamela Anderson decide, and then it's separate. That's never mind. That's another deal. Three inventories, guys. You sit down there, you get that stuff knocked out. And then the next little session, we get an opportunity. We'll talk about uh, that old fist step. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And now for tradition five. Billy, the floor is yours for the next 20 minutes. Thanks, everyone. Billy, alcoholic. You know, and I wanted to, uh, let me just set my timer. Um, you know, I think sometimes, again, going back to be practical, you know, Chris mentioned a thing about saying your last name. You know, the world changes. That's a fact. Technology changes. It's very customary to say your last name in an AA meeting. Very customary to say your last name at the podium. Things change. Where this whole thing changed in the group conscience of AA is when you're recorded. But it's hard for people who grew up saying their last name. So what I'm saying is don't shoot the messenger. You know, someone says their last name. It just happens to come out. Um, so tradition five. I'm going to read the long form. Each Alcoholics Anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, 
that of carrying its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. That's from uh, long form. In AA Comes of Age, on page 106, it has a great first line under the fifth tradition. It says, we think we should do one thing well rather than many things to which we are not called. This is the central idea of this tradition. Our society gathers in unity around this concept. The very life of our fellowship requires its preservation. Shoemaker, stick to thy last is no dull cliche for Alcoholics Anonymous. Together we have found a substantial remedy for a terrible malady. Of course, we might find interest ourselves in fields of education, research, neurosis, and the like. But as a society, should we? Our experience says that we definitely should not. We cannot, and we do not help as individuals in those fields. And again, I'm going to go back to another thing that Chris said. Is there's a big difference, I think, when you're sharing in a meeting as opposed to sharing from a podium. When you're sitting amongst a meeting, you're just one of a gang in there. But again, I'm going to the new person who walks into Alcoholics Anonymous. If you walk into any other meeting in the world, I don't care if it's the Kiwanis Club, the Knights of Columbus, the Sons of Italy, whatever, the person sitting at the front table speaking at the podium is in charge. It's just what we've been trained to think naturally. So for a newcomer, when they see somebody at a podium, and so there is definitely a harder, more stringent responsibility when you are speaking at a meeting, on a tradition, on a step, on a concept, because the newcomer can't help but think that you're an authority. They can't help it. So I loved when Chris talked about medicine, and he kept talking about himself. This was his story. As opposed to other people who just want to tell people, don't take medicine. That's the line. You know, I say it all the time. The international convention is going to be in Vancouver. And, you know, now it's like two years away, believe it or not. I used to look forward to them. Now I just know I'm another five years older. And those five years seem to be running out. So that's, that's, what it, that's what it appears to me. But I often joke around and call the International Convention the largest gathering of unlicensed medical providers in the world. Um, because we do one thing. I don't have a ruler in front of me, but I have a remote control. Almost the same size as a ruler. And I always say AA is like a ruler. We're really tall and really narrow. We know one thing about one thing. That's it. We have one solution. We don't have multiple solutions. And we only have one solution about one problem. In the AA group pamphlet, on page 18, there is the following statement. The primary purpose of of any AA group and by the way, remember there, it doesn't say NAA group. It says the primary purpose of any AA group is to carry the AA message to alcoholics. Experience with alcohol is one thing all AA members have in common. It is misleading to hint or give the impression that AA solves other problems or knows what to do about drug addiction. So again, 
the steps, I mean, the traditions collide with the big book here in our program of recovery. Identification is so important. You know, it's another thing like not saying your last names. I'll give you another one. When people talk about drunkologues, if you're defining a drunkologue as crashing cars, jumping off of hotel balconies into pools, fighting with bouncers, one night stands, that is useless information and has nothing to do with being an alcoholic. Now, what a drunkologue is supposed to be is the medical estimate of alcoholism, of you getting across to the audience what happens to you when you drink. And that it's different than when a normal person drinks. We can't take that out of speaking. Because again, I'll go back to another Al-Anon speaker who said something great that I love, which is if the newcomer doesn't know that I have their problem, they're not going to take my solution. They have to trust that I have suffered from the same thing as them. And this fifth tradition goes back to the earliest days before Alcoholics Anonymous. The earliest days. And again, Chris will talk about working with others. But the fifth tradition is really practical implication of working with others right out of the big book. And working with others, you can lay over the doctor's opinion. And basically, it's saying the same thing. And one of the things that I would love, and uh, by the way, if you have a fourth edition big book in front of you, I'm going to be talking specifically about chapter seven. And in the fourth edition, that would be page 89, 90, and 91, and 92. Um, go back to what happened to Bill W., December of 1934, he has a spiritual experience at Towns Hospital. No one can explain what happened. He's sober for months after that. Except what happens in like, you know, late April, early May of 1934. Bill, by the way, if you're taking notes, I know someone asked about Towns Hospital. 182 Clinton Street, Brooklyn, New York, in Brooklyn Heights. You take the R train there and get off at Court Street if you're going to be in New York. Um, you know, Bill is unhappy that while he is sober, he has been unable to get anyone else sober. It hasn't worked. And if you've seen the movies, which if you're like where I go to AA, Unfortunately, one of those Bill W. movies has been on Amazon Prime for like 60 days. And so I have like a newcomer a week show up as an expert on AA history because they weren't able to sleep the night before and watch that movie. Um, but, you know, everybody remembers the famous scene at 182 Clinton Street. But my mother was a member of Al-Anon. I'm not anti-Al-Anon. I always say. Some people in AA say there's nothing worse than a belly full of booze and a head full of AA. I'm a teenage alcoholic with a mother in Al-Anon. So my story is different. 
My story is there's nothing worse than a belly full of booze and your mother's head full of Al-Anon. That's my story. That'll really ruin your drinking if you're a teenager. And um, you know, Lois did not care that Bill couldn't help anybody. She had a singular view. Was her husband sober and therefore not stealing? Forget going to work. She didn't need him to go to work. She needed him to stop stealing the money from her going to work, right? To not make her work experience a negative, right? She just cared that he was sober and she was ecstatic that he was. And she said that to him. Who cares? You're sober. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Now, sometimes we take that to exaggeration. It's kind of like my pet peeve about what I read about our chief responsibility is an adequate presentation of the program. Imagine we all stayed as bad as Bill was with working with other people. None of us would be here tonight. If there wasn't an adequate presentation of the program, none of us would be here. And so Bill hears what Lois has to say, but thank God he mentioned it to Dr. Silkworth a couple of weeks later. And thank God Dr. Silkworth did not have the same reaction. You cannot find this. I do not have my AA Comes of Age open to this page. Uh, I'll have it by tomorrow for question. I'll put it in the chat at questions and answers. It's not in the big book. It's in AA Comes of Age. But thank God Bill said this same story to Dr. Silkworth before he went to Akron. And Dr. Silkworth asked him a very simple question. Tell me your approach. What's your approach with these people? And after Bill told him, well, Dr. Silkworth basically told Bill his approach sucks, right? Your approach is horrible. Like, you cannot tell drunks that at three o'clock in the morning you were in a hospital bed and God blew the windows open with the wind and you felt like you were floating on a cloud on top of mountains having some spiritual experience. That's not going to work. You have to stick to the medical estimate of alcoholism. You need to get them to believe that you have the same thing wrong as them. And that's what's wrong when we start focusing on other things like DWIs, child support payments not being made, arrests, domestic situations, all things that some of us may have, but not all of us. Dr. Silkworth's instructions to Bill was to focus on what all of us have the same, which is the allergy and the obsession. One of my craziest things that drives me crazy is when someone says to a newcomer, that's your disease talking. How do you say that to somebody who doesn't know what the disease is? How do you say that to somebody who you haven't taken the time to explain to them what our disease is? What disease? You start talking like that, they think the disease is doing push-ups in the parking lot which is like the craziest thing ever said in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like if you are in God's grace and you are an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, your recovery is doing push-ups, not the disease. But you say that and they don't even know what the disease is. Dr. Bob agreed 
with Henrietta Seibling to give this guy from New York 15 minutes in the gatehouse. Hopefully some of you will someday get there. I got there the first time it was open to the public. When you sit in that gatehouse in the room that Bill and Bob met each other, it's an amazing feeling. Amazing. But when Dr. Bob was asked, why did he wait? Why did the meeting go so long? He always said the following. Because Bill is the first person I met who talked about his own drinking. And it's exactly the same as mine. What could be called the Me Too moment. You have to get every newcomer to that Me Too moment. They're not going to do what Chris just said. They're not going to draw lines on a piece of paper and rows and columns and start listing stuff until they know that they have to. And until they know that you had to. Again, in the current fourth edition of the big book, if you go to the forward to the second edition, one of my favorites, and if you go to page XVI, so that's 26 in Roman numerals, here's a little statement. The physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means. That means Dr. Bob had repeatedly gone to the Oxford group to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker, that being Bill W., gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. You can give alcoholics all the spiritual advice you want in the world. They need to know they're hopeless. They need to know what this disease is. And that's why our primary purpose is so important. We only know one thing about one thing. We don't know about other diseases. We know about alcoholism. And when we go too far off the page, listen, young people's meetings, gay meetings, trans meetings, there's all different kinds of meetings. But they all have to have the same primary purpose. And the primary purpose has nothing to do with what any, any of those individual differences are. The primary purpose is, do you suffer from an allergy? When you start drinking, you cannot stop. And much worse than that, do you have this mental obsession that when you're uncomfortable in your own skin... Your brain tells you to take a drink to be comfortable. We have to stick to that primary purpose. When we get too far off track with specialist meetings, I'm not opposed to specialist meetings by any means. But when they go too far off track, any special purpose meeting, that's about attracting someone to maybe go into a meeting that, because they would not go to another meeting. But the quality of the meeting should not be different. And the literature used in the meeting should not be different. And the type of sharing should not be different. I'm going to say something else about primary purpose here. And I know this is, you know, again, when you've done this enough times, you know what gets you the hate mail, right? Um, because one thing I'll tell you, I was, I was kind of laughing to myself before. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing because I loved when people were talking about 
well, only so many people would come because they want to hear about the big book. And only so many people would come because they want to hear about traditions and talking about Chris and I. And I just want to like level the playing field for a second. If anyone thinks that the accolades or the praise emails outweigh the hate mail or the rotten things said about you, I just want to make sure that I let you know that, yes, no matter what you do, you're going to just get hit by this. You are. And these special purpose meetings, here's a statement that drives me crazy in regards to this tradition. When a man opens up in a meeting, a men's meeting, and says, well, I'm sharing this here because it's a men's meeting. Right away, I know he's sharing something that has nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. Right away. I wouldn't share this in a regular meeting. Well, why? Does that men's meeting not have a primary purpose? Is the focus of that meeting not recovery from alcoholism? as a result of the 12 steps. Otherwise, maybe it's a group counseling session for men, which again, is not bad. I'm not against group counseling. I'm not against individual therapists. Some therapists have helped me very much, but very different than AA. The AA setting should be sacred. Preamble to prayer should be about God's grace through the 12 steps. The other thing is, I, the last thing I want to mention is the newcomer to an AA meeting who's dying of alcoholism. If they can't identify with the speaker, you know, we say flipping things sometimes. Well, if, if what I said bothered them, alcohol will bring them back in. Well, not necessarily. Not if you drink like we do. You may never come back. And so that new person, we should make sure that they can identify with what's being said in that meeting. And if the person is talking about other problems other than alcohol, what's the new person to think? You know, sometimes we're so insulated in the world we live in that we're like our own island of misfit toys and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? We have a broken yo-yo and a broken jack-in-the-box, and we are about as misfit toys as misfit toys could be, you know? And, and, and when new people come in, they want to hear that if what's broken in them is alcoholism, that they're in the right place. Not that they need other problems to belong here. And we sometimes forget Again, because we're in this insulated community called Alcoholics Anonymous that we know when something's crazy and when something's not. But how many times have I had to explain to a new person in AA that just because we meet in that church, we're not religious. We just happen to rent space from that church. Just because we hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer does not mean you have to be Christian to be here. So what the newcomer sees and what the newcomer hears is super important. And when it comes to our primary purpose, it's about recovery from alcoholism. Thanks, everyone.